Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done by folks who have used the historical collections in the Hagley Library, especially scholars who have received support from the Hagley Center in the form of research grants and fellowships of different kinds. One such scholar joining me today is Clark Barwick, teaching professor of business communication at the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. Clark, thanks for joining me today. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. Let's buy painting with broad strokes. What is it you're researching and writing about? So I came to Hagley interested in a uh, chemist from the last century named Peter Schlumbaum, who invented a device called the Chemex coffee maker um, that has sustained in popularity um, since the 40s. And what is uh, your interest in this subject? So my research interest broadly is in food studies. I'm interested in the global coffee trade. Mm -hmm. And um, I, in teaching classes and reading a lot about coffee and thinking about coffee, I came to learn about Peter Schlombaum, who um, grew up in Germany, uh, trained as, as a PhD in chemistry, uh, a serial inventor, uh, just a super fascinating guy who immigrated to New York um, in the 30s and uh, invented this, this device which um, in, in my research, I, I've, I've, I think I can say with confidence that it's one of the first significant American contributions to global coffee culture. Mm. And that was just really exciting. And so in my, um, in my um, research, I, I discovered that Hagley owned some of the most important documents that exist uh, relevant to Peter Schlumbaum and his career. And so uh, I was able to connect with you all and visit uh, the archive last summer. Oh, that's great. Yeah, industrial design is one of our special collecting areas of interest. What is it uh, that you discovered in the archive in the Schlumbaum papers? So Peter Schlumbaum was a very interesting guy. He both was a, so he was a serial inventor. He wasn't by trade a, a, in the coffee industry. He just created this this invention to solve a problem. He was he was sort of um, unhappy with the thickness and, and, and um, sort of, uh, murkiness of coffee and so he creates this this chemistry device that that sort of endures um but he was also a master entrepreneur i think for for our listeners and our viewers uh you might imagine someone operating in new york during the Mad Men era maybe a little bit before that but he was um in addition to being a, a brilliant chemist and inventor he was also a very smart business person and uh and and really marketed uh, the Chemex and his other inventions, which we can talk about if you'd like, um, in, in a way that um, got his products in front of people. Um, and uh, Hagley uh, happened to, uh, by way of, of another collector, come into some of his scrapbooks that he kept. So in addition to being um, just a, a really innovative person, he also was um, keeping business records, keeping all sorts of publication and um, um, advertising materials, and, and just overall uh, just information about his business, and that was a lot of what what is um, is stored at, at Hagley. So um, when I came to Hagley, there were um, most of the information on Schlumbaum is is uh, it seems like these are scrapbooks. Uh, it appears that, that that he produced scrapbooks um, himself, but it might have been somebody in his company. 
And these scrapbooks are just really fascinating to look at. They have personal photographs, they have business documents, they have blueprints and prototypes for the Chemex. So if you're trying, like me as a cultural historian, trying to put together a story, he's really left us a lot. And then there are also um, things that I, I left Hagley with, with more questions, which is also really fun. Mm-hmm. Well, what is it about the Chemex that makes it so special? So prior to um, the Chemex, uh, most most coffee, uh, like I said earlier, was made um, in, in what we would probably um, uh, call these days kind of, it, the, the coffee itself was kind of disgusting. It was thick. Um, it, there, there wasn't a consistent process for, for sort of making coffee, percolators, other devices, heavy machinery produced coffee. It was often burnt, overcooked. And Schlumbaum decided, um, as a chemist, and he had been very interested in refrigeration. He had uh, done work for the American Thermos Company. So he was already thinking in terms of um, food uh, storage. He, he cre- created devices and inventions for like cigarettes, um, he, automatic trash cans. He, he was already thinking about how to improve daily life in terms of consumption. So he basically creates this um, device. And I'll actually show it for those of you who are watching uh, the video of this, and, and I'll try to describe this for, for those of you who are just listening. He creates um, this device that looks like it could appear in a lab. It's a, it's a essentially a, um, a glass carafe or a, a sort of an hourglass um, device. Um, there's no electricity. It, it's a, um, it, it, it essentially, I guess you would just call it a flask. And it, um, it has a wooden sleeve on it. So when uh, the device gets really, really hot because it's brewing coffee, it will, um, somebody could actually pick it up and, and pour it or use it. But the idea is that you've basically got this hourglass flask, makes 30-ish ounces of coffee. You put a double bonded filter on top and put coffee, um, ground coffee in the in the filter and pour hot water over it. So it's a pretty all-in-one device. It was nice for um, during the, the wartime because this device was essentially um, developed in the late 30s and comes to market in the 40s um, when materials were scarce. Mm-hmm. And so metal and other devices that that wouldn't have been, would have been needed if, in a war effort. Um, Schlumbaum, who by the way was German and had served in, in the German army in World War One, and, and came to America and became a proud American um, by the time of World War II, um, he, de- he develops this device that essentially now, if you if you ever consume coffee via a pour over, um, which would is often um, a one cup type of device, this is a, a forerunner to that. Mm-hmm. So what happens is when you put the coffee in and you have a filter over this glass device over this um, conical um, uh, flask, the from a sort of a chemistry perspective, it, it's producing a, a super clean cup of coffee that would retain the caffeine, but it would pull out a lot of the oils. So in a lot of ways, a very different type of coffee than if you're familiar with how espresso is made, which actually pulls out all the all the delicious oils and retains a lot of the flavors. This is going to produce a cup of coffee that is really clean and um, light and, um, and delicious. And so, the, the device itself, which is beautiful and, and, and was Bauhaus inflected, it's, um, 
it actually has been um Schlumbaum was friends with with the with this the Bauhaus community and this this device has actually been um you know on display at MoMA and and, and other museums around and permanent collections around the world so it's it's appreciated as this beautiful aesthetic thing but it actually makes a cup of coffee that those who are interested in specialty coffee today still like if you talk to someone who who is really interested in coffee they'll still know what a chemex is and and many people still use them i was i was just my wife and i were just watching um uh, like a home and garden like an hgtv show the other day um two consecutive episodes um a family that was showing off their cabin or whatever like they were different families were, were were brewing a chemex and so it's a lifestyle it's an aesthetic device but really at the end of the day it, it produces really really clean delicious coffee which is something uh, pretty remarkable out of such an elegant device, such a simplistic device. Is that that's perhaps right. part of its magic? I think that's part of its magic. I think the uh, it, it's the whole thing that it's it's an experience. It um, prior to the time that Schlumbaum creates this this um, this Chemex coffee and still for a lot of people coffee is a very functional thing you drink coffee to get your day started you don't really worry in the way that you might worry think about wine or other types of food the quality of your coffee some of us do but a lot of us drink coffee uh functionally that was certainly going on in the 20s leading up to uh, the time of this device and then during the 40s 50s and 60s when we really see mass production of food items in the united states with the canister of Folgers that a lot of our parents, grandparents, great grandparents may have uh, may have consumed. This is really this device really facilitates the experience of coffee, which gets picked up later in the 60s, the 70s, 80s, eventually with Starbucks and what's called the second wave of coffee that really starts to think of coffee as a more special food item rather than just this this thing coffee and big letters that you would drink a mug of and then just go to work and then more recently the third wave which has been over the like the last 20 years where we really have especially coffee enthusiasts and companies doing all sorts of innovative things Schlumbaum's really at the beginning of this and and i i love the fact that um that he he created this device in America, but he was an immigrant. And I think that's a really, that's, you're asking me about what attracts me to his story. I think in this, in this era, as we're going, as when we look back at, at what's made America, what it is and what can make America in the future. I think that Schoenbaum's an excellent example of someone bringing uh, ideas and education from another culture and doing something wildly imaginative in the United States that benefits the world. That's really exciting to me. Yeah, that is a great story. I'm wondering um, how he marketed this device. You said that he was really successful in getting his products in front of people, um, building perhaps a awareness um, in the marketplace of his products. How was he able to market the Chemex? He really had a good mind for product placement and he understood um, things like pricing. Um, he understood uh, department store culture. He understood that this device was important to get in front of women as well as men because um, women were at the time and, and still and in, in, uh, across America, you know, uh, really prominent in terms of thinking about a family's food uh, consumption and, and, and buying patterns. So he was reaching out to Macy's. Um, he was getting his 
device and catalogs obviously way pre-internet so if someone in nebraska wanted to if he wanted to connect with a, a person there he was figuring out the correct catalogs um he would again he was thinking a lot about what the perfect price point was um and then he he was doing a lot in terms of sort of uh, i guess we would call them um trade shows uh mm -hmm. This he's living in in Midtown Manhattan, so he has a lot of friends that are in. Um, you know, this is kind of the height of, uh, or one of the the peaks of American magazine readership, and so he's featured in Life. He's featured in the New Yorker. I mean, the, absolutely, like the, it's almost hard to explain how many people would have encountered Schlumbaum um through uh through life magazine at the time being being um uh, featured in the 1940s um so it's really good about all that and then i don't and it, i'm trying to figure out where Schlumbaum was a dynamic person and so where he was being featured because someone thought what he, the work he was doing was really interesting and where he was able to kind of negotiate his way into publications i think it was a little bit of both but for instance james bond and um from russia with love in the novel in fleming's novel james bond drinks a chemex and so i'm almost certain uh schlumbaum wasn't uh contacting ian fleming and saying hey could you could you uh you know put my device in your in your book um so i think that he was good at letting people know about his device and then once they discovered it and found that it's it's this thing that's endured for 80 80 some odd years enthusiastically it shows up in friends for instance uh in their in their apartment and in, in the uh, popular 90s show so it's it's just something that kind of took on a life of its own mm -hmm. yeah i um my in-laws when they got really into coffee culture they had to get a chemex and were preaching uh you know proselytizing about its virtues um i'm wondering you said that this was one of the first real american contributions to global coffee culture what is american um, the American position in that global culture, and have we contributed other um, in other meaningful ways to it? I think so. And coffee is one of so I teach classes on the global coffee trade at Indiana University, and the, it, coffee is impossible to talk about without talking about globalism and exchange and innovation because. Um, a lot of the, the viewers and, and listeners may not realize this, but coffee can't be grown, at least now, maybe with climate change, will change that will change. But coffee cannot be grown in the United States outside of Hawaii. So coffee has to be grown in an equatorial belt, but coffee is consumed all over the world in most cultures. I mean, most cultures have now a connection to coffee. So um, whether we're talking about the cherry that's being pulled on the pulled off the um the plant all all the way to being roasted and packaged and ending up in your in your Starbucks um, drive-through. Coffee is inextricably um, connected to all sorts of issues having to do with equity, human rights, but just globalism in general. So, if we look at American contributions from that perspective, it, there's always exchange going on. It's it's difficult to 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 pull anything um, uniquely out. But I would say, for instance, in the last um, 30 or 40 years, the prevalence of, of a company like Starbucks and lots of other companies. But now, for instance, in um, in Asia, Korea historically was a tea drinking country. And within a decade and, and largely due, I would I would argue, to the prominence of companies like Starbucks, uh, coffee is is wildly popular in that country. And I would say mm -hmm. that's one way to think about 
contribution. There are a lot of, on a micro level, a lot of other exchanges that have happened. Um, Americans purchase a lot of coffee too. So um, when the system's sort of working, uh, in my opinion, the right way, we're investing in, in purchasing coffee as conscious, active consumers and, and buying from the right places. And Americans have that purchasing power. So I would say that in a lot of ways, we're, we're um, dictating the lives of people far outside the United States. So that's kind of an expansive answer, but I, I would say that America sort of picked up with, with Schlombaum and, um, and, and now every single city in the United States has its own specialty coffee culture. It's pretty remarkable to think that America is importing this coffee and then exporting a business model built around it in the form of Starbucks or other chains that then create new coffee drinkers elsewhere. That's a really, really remarkable and um, uh, a highly globalized story, isn't it? That's right. And it, and it brings with it, as I talk with my students in nearly every class, it brings enormous responsibility. And so one of the things that's been really exciting about teaching on coffee and food in general, but especially coffee, is that we have this special power that we have to understand when we go and buy something in the store or we we frequent a certain type of um, establishment in terms of our coffee or when we go somewhere else, when we travel abroad and we decide to try something new, we're doing more than just creating an experience for ourselves. And um, at least within coffee, because I can, I can, I've studied enough to say that we have a profound impact on communities around the globe that we might not even realize, you know, that we're, we're impacting. So there, there is a responsibility there and that can be um, something we look at productively. Um, I don't think it has to be just about being critical of ourselves. Like I think we can, we can actually, there's actually space for change if we, if we're engaged. Hmm. Now, you mentioned different waves of uh, coffee culture in the United States. Uh, could you perhaps briefly sketch that narrative history for us? Sure. So, um, as I mentioned in the 50s, so the time when Schlombach was kind of zagging, where everybody is sort of zigging in a, in a certain, uh, we, we're, we're, we're very familiar with um, mass consumption, mass production of, of all sorts of items, but food becomes mass produced and coffee in particular, like I was saying, like with the big canisters of coffee. So during the 50s and 60s, uh, every house starts to, you know, coffee would be some place that you could get a diner or a restaurant, uh, but it really becomes ubiquitous in American households. So houses would have a coffee, uh, a way to make coffee, if not a, the, the kind of classic coffee maker, which today you almost really see in hotels, like a lot of people have moved on to different coffee devices rather than the classic coffee pot. But those classic coffee pots allowed families to scoop 10 scoops of coffee that was, who knows what quality it was, what, who knows where it was made. It was coffee, coffee. Uh, and, um, it, but everyone, it, it, was, it was very affordable. It was consistent, even if it might not have tasted awesome. And that's the first wave of, of ubiquitous coffee in the United States. The second wave, uh, again, comes up with uh, companies like Starbucks. Starbucks wasn't the first, but companies like Starbucks that start to say, hey, this product that all of us are drinking and it's, uh, you know, it's an industry of billions of dollars. Like, let's time out. Let's maybe we can like make this taste better. And it's not actually uh, that difficult to make it taste better if you just focus on you know, the actual product itself, how we brew it. And um, we'll give Americans a certain, and people around the world, but think about Starbucks and the vocabulary that if you're my age, 
we didn't grow up using grande, venti, uh, macchiato, these terms that Starbucks has actually even in some ways created themselves. In some instances, what a macchiato means to people in America is different than what the actual classic coffee term is. But the fact that your grandmother or someone who was a not a foodie or a food person would then be able to use coffee vocabulary. That's what we see happening in the late eighties and nineties hmm. in the, in the more recent decades, there was a focus on specialty coffee and really, really understanding coffee almost on the level that uh, like wine enthusiasts would have um, for just trying to produce the perfect cup of coffee uh, and in, in a local fashion. So you could get that in most, in most towns. What I think the, the problem with that, and that would have been called the third wave or is called the third wave, there was a certain elitism to, to that that I think has been has been documented about, um, I mean, you can just imagine the sort of stereotypes. So you go into a, a coffee shop and you don't know anything about coffee and you just want a cup of coffee or you want to maybe even try something new and you look at a menu and there are all these, and you go up and you, you know, these these terms and these drinks and you go up and you ask the barista and they kind of, you know, maybe hipster is the, is the stereotype or whatever the, the, you, you kind of feel stupid from, for at, even asking or even being in the store, this fourth wave or late third wave, which I would say has happened. It started before the pandemic, but, but more recently has said, okay, let's keep everything that's great about local specialty coffee. And this is uh, Starbucks tells me that, they're selling more cold coffee now than, than even hot coffee. So mm. it's not just your classic hot coffee, it's, it's cold coffee, cold brew as well. But let's um, let's make this accessible. Like let's not make people feel stupid. Let's open this up and actually go back to what Schlombaum was thinking about, just a good experience. And so more recently these, um, I think a lot of coffee shops have really focused on being more welcoming, uh, more more of places for education. So if you go in and you just ask for your cup of coffee, you'll get it. But if you actually ask, one of the things I ask my students to think about is sourcing, because that's a big deal if you're thinking about human rights or price equity or whatever. And, um, you know, so you can go into your local coffee shop and say, where is this coffee from? And they say Guatemala or they say Yemen or wherever. And uh, they might say Hawaii. And that tells you something and they're glad to share that with you, but they don't make you feel stupid for asking. So in a lot of ways, that story seems to mirror the um, trends in American consumer economy more broadly. I hope so. Right. And so hopefully we're doing a better job at understanding where our products come from value and quality. I think that, that's something I see when I get, um, you know, advertisement, I come across advertisements that are tailored for me on the internet, or I get something in the, in the regular postal mail, there's, there seems to be more attention paid, people are willing to pay more for quality items. And it's the same thing with coffee that we're, you're paying for what you get. And so if you, there are a lot of people that can't afford a $9 coffee, and that's understandable, but can we bring the quality to a better price point? I think that's what what's going on in a lot of shops, making the, the, the product more accessible. It's really exciting. Um, but from teaching my students, it's always exciting when we, when we start out a semester and I, and I'm able to go back to the place where I was when I first started studying food and coffee and realize how little the average person actually knows about 
anything like even even where basic commodities that we consume all the time come from we're very detached from the origins a lot of times not everyone mm -hmm. i have plenty of students that are from from farms and places like that but for a lot of students that grew up in cities or in suburbs we're just really detached from where our products come from and this kind of research can help close that gap i hope so yeah mm -hmm. that's that's the goal and students get really excited about when you make these discoveries hopefully you can hear this from me too how how much fun this is students really enjoy learning oh there's a difference here and i can actually potentially when it, when it, so i can potentially understand how i'm using and they don't see themselves as having a lot of money but how i can be intentional with my money there there's been a push recently for instance in coffee to be able to um, empower both consumers and producers with technology. Technology sometimes is seen as getting in the way of things, but at least in coffee, one way that um, technology and, and potentially AI, but technology might empower uh, those who are interested in coffee is allowing uh, coffee consumers to understand exactly where their coffee came from. So not just Guatemala, but actually from a specific farm, maybe picked by a specific person. And then maybe these communities that historically have had lots of political and market obstacles to actually understanding how to market and sell their product at the highest you know, benefit, understanding, oh, this person in Bloomington, Indiana is going to be buying my coffee, and this is probably how they'll they'll drink this. Um, we from time to time in my classes we watch documentaries on coffee. There are a bunch of great documentaries, and um, my student that one of the tropes that we see over and over a very common scene is a producer on the ground, and you know in South America or, or Central America trying their coffee for the first time like as an espresso and they're like oh this tastes good and my students are like what is going on here they've never tried their own coffee but that seems like depending on the product not that uncommon for mm -hmm. largely poor people who produce our things around the world. Well Clark thank you so much for taking the time to share this with me it's been great. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me at Hagley. I would encourage anyone who hasn't had a chance to travel to Delaware um, to visit the, 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 the whole campus or whatever you call the, 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 um, the grounds are just beautiful. The buildings are beautiful. Everyone was so welcoming. So if you're a researcher and you're thinking about um, doing archival work and there's a, a collection that makes sense to consult, I could not have had a better experience. And I look forward to continuing to share out what I've learned as I'm still processing some of my my research um, moving forward. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for saying so. And for our audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>